Hi, I'm Josh Shearer and I serve as the lead pastor here at Gawley Uniting Church. I wanted to personally thank you for joining us today. We exist as a church to see lives transformed with the good news of Jesus. Now, I hope this service inspires you. I hope it blesses you. I hope it builds your faith and I hope it gives you perspective that God is moving in your life. If there is anything that we can do to help you, don't be afraid to reach out on social media or email our office. Thanks for joining us again and let's get to the service. Here's to the crazy ones, the misfits, the rebels, the troublemakers, the round pegs in the square holes, the ones who see things differently. They're not fond of rules and they have no respect for the status quo. You can quote them, disagree with them, glorify or vilify them. About the only thing you can't do is ignore them because they change things. They push the human race forward. While some may see them as the crazy ones, we see genius. Because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. Apple launched one of the most groundbreaking advertising campaigns of our modern age. It was unlike anything that the world had experienced in terms of advertisement and marketing up until that time. Think differently. Think Differently. Can you turn me down a little bit, Tim? Thanks. That, that advertisement campaign captured the heart and ultimately became the thing that shaped the identity of Apple, the Apple that we know today. An Apple that is known for its edginess, that's known for its innovation, that's known for being a market leader, that is known for doing things a little bit differently. It was a call to have courage. It was a call to push against the current thinking of the age. And it has become famous. It is something that won an extraordinary number of advertising awards for its innovation and for the way that it invited people to think outside of themselves. And not once did it ever show a product that Apple was seeking to sell. Why do I bring this up? Why do I begin a sermon with an, with an advertisement from 1997 about a product that you might not even own? You might be an, an Apple person, or you might be an Android person. And some of you have no idea what either of those things are. And that's okay. You say, I love apples. I like oranges as well, but apples are good. We're talking about a digital device if you just weren't clear about that. But why do I bring up this idea of thinking differently? 
We've been talking in this series over the last couple of weeks about how our heart as a church is to help our wider community think differently about the church, think differently about faith, and ultimately to think differently about God. And the basic idea of this whole series has been for Gawler. The church has been known for far too long for what it is against. Instead, we want to be known for what we are for. Absolutely. At least the front row was listening. That's great. And so, and so to think differently, the invitation is for us to think differently by paying attention to what we are for rather than what we are against in our own sense of, of spirituality or in our own life. Because for some of us in our life, the world has dinged us so much. Life and reality and experiences have done so much damage to us and our sense of self, even to our faith, that we actually go around life just thinking about and commenting on the things that we're against. And so often we've actually forgotten how to talk about what we are for. And so in some sense, this series is not just about us as a whole community communicating what we are for. It's actually also an invitation to look within ourselves and be reminded what we are for. Because these recent years and and the ambient anxiety that exists in the world and the busyness and, and all the stuff that happens to us can leave us jaded and broken and frustrated and annoyed and cynical. Anyone had a cynical moment lately? And what do we do when we are cynical? We're all about what we're against and nothing about what we are for. Could this be an opportunity to transform our thinking as well? But I talked about in the first week that we're inviting our community to think differently and make sure that we as a, that they as, sorry, to make sure that what our community hears about us as a church and sees us doing, we want to ensure that Those things are never a barrier to people coming and encountering God. That's what we talked about in the first week, being for our community so that we are not a barrier. And last week, Emily talked about thinking, the invitation for people to think differently about the purpose of the church, to embody Jesus' mission to seek and to save the lost, anyone that's far away from God. And he he gave his life for a world that rejected him. We read that in the first part of John's Gospel. That Jesus gave his life for those that would not receive him. And that we're actually also called to have the same mission. That you and I are called to be for those that may have already decided that they are against us. That they are not interested in faith. That they do not want to have anything to do with the church. And that's totally fine. But if we are to model the way of Jesus, we are to still be for those that have already chosen not to be for us. And today, I want us to think differently again. But I want to think differently, I want us to think differently about God. Now, I'm not bringing in any radical theology or anything like that. But what I'm inviting us to do, because this whole series has been about perception, is for us to take a look once again at the God that we believe in, the God that we worship, the God that we proclaim, And the way that that helps or hinders our ability to share the gospel with the world that desperately needs it. 
This is significant for non-Christians, for sure. So if you're not a follower of Jesus, I hope you hear from me this morning the truth about who God is, and particularly who God isn't. But also, if you're a follower of Jesus, I want you to recalibrate and rethink about what it means that you might follow the God that loves you and created you and is for you. Because when we believe in that God, when we follow that God, it changes everything. So you might not think about this much, but each of us has given God a name. Every one of us has given God a name. And that name, in some sense, no matter if you're a Christian or a non-Christian, wherever you're joining us from, every single one of us, something I know about you, is that you have given God a name, a way to describe God, a way to relate to God. And if you're a follower of Jesus, that name might be something like father, or it could be friend, or brother, or Baby Jesus, if that's the way that you pray, some people do. Some people pray to a loving God. Some people pray to a gracious God. Some people pray to a Lord. Some people pray to something completely different. But for those that are not followers of Jesus, when they necessarily hear about God or they think of God, and this is probably true for some Christians as well, or those that profess to be Christian, is that they would see God as celestial Santa Claus. A God that we can just pray to for what we want, when we want it, and if we've been a good little boy or a good little girl, then we will get what we are given, or we get a lump of coal, if we're not. Some people view God as a cosmic killjoy. This is a, 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 like a, a common critique within the, within the atheist community, within those that would profess that if God is really, if God is real, then He must be a cosmic killjoy, a little, a little kid with a magnifying glass just cruising around, smiting out people's joy based on all the suffering and everything that's in the world. How can God be real if all of that exists? A very important conversation for us to have another day. But for some people, that's how they see God. And some people see God as a set and forget sort of God. They just, it, God just pushed the wheelie bin down the hill and let it go. And it hit a few things on the way down, dinged the car, and that's, in their opinion, that's what the world is like. That God just set it going and left it. See, every one of us has a picture of God. And with that, we, we ascribe some sort of a name. And frames what we believe about God. But, and so what is in a name, then? Surely a name's just a name, there's nothing significant. But what's interesting is that across the world in all sorts of different places, but, but particularly in the ancient world, and it's, an, it's, it's a tradition we've inherited as well, there's something significant about names. That many of you have a name and you actually know what that name means. That in different, in different traditions, you were handed down a name quite specifically because of what it meant. And in the ancient world throughout Scripture, we see that in very specific ways that people's names changed based on the way that God transformed their character. And so there's something significant about a name. And some would say that you speak a name over someone's life, that is ultimately what they become, in a sense. And I've, we've, we've seen that in different places. When someone speaks a name of abuse over someone, 
they shrink as a human being. But when you speak hope and life and meaning and purpose into someone's life, so often they thrive into that. There's something significant about the names that we ascribe to others. And throughout Scripture, there's about 30 different names used for God. 30 different names, at least that many, used to reference God. And I want to look today at two moments in time, just two. Two moments in time, one of them is where God shares His own name, or God's own name. And the other is where Jesus relates to God and invites us to call God by a very specific name. So I wanted you to turn with me, if you've got a Bible with you, we're headed to Exodus, chapter 34, Exodus, second book of the Old Testament, quite early on in the Bible, chapter 34, starting in verse 1. It should be up on the screen. You can follow along there or follow along in your Bible. That's fine too. But to give you some, some background, some context to this passage, this is the story of the nation of Israel. Israel, in this moment in time, has been delivered out of slavery in Egypt, where they were for 400 years. And God claims this nation for His own. Not because they've done anything, not because they've lived right, but because God decided to. He said, you are going to be my nation, and from this nation will be an extraordinary gift that, that the world desperately needs. And as God claims this nation, He sets before them a rhythm of life, some commandments by which they are to live and do and be God's chosen people in the world. And that's known as the law. And the law was written down on two stone tablets. And Moses receives those, gives them to the people. But during this time of, God, of Moses receiving the law from God, he's up there on the mountain with God for 40 days and 40 nights, receiving the Minor points, God's explaining a few things to him. You can imagine how this conversation would have gone. But while he's gone, Israel, the nation, gets distracted. After everything that's happened, after all the miraculous stuff they have seen, they get distracted. And they go to Aaron, Moses' brother, who's sort of like the, the second in charge, leading at the time. And he's, they say, we need something to worship because Moses is gone. We don't even know if he's coming back. He's not answering his phone. Um, can you, we can't get him on Instagram, anything. We just can't get him. So we need something to put our devotion in. And so Aaron decides to, he says, all right, get all of the, poor judgment, by the way, gets all the gold, melt down, build a calf, worship that. It can technically be God or it can be not God, whatever you want it to be, but that's what happens. And Moses gets back from the mountain looks around and goes, really? Is that all it took? After everything you've seen, 40 days was all it took for you to get distracted and worship something else. And he smashes the tablets God's given him on the ground in frustration. And as a result of that, disobedience, actually a whole lot of people died. You can read that in your own time. There's some really complex theological discussion around that. A whole lot of people die as a result of that disobedience. But Moses is stuck with a problem. He broke the tablets. So now he needs some new ones. So back up the mountain he goes to meet with God. And in verse 33, just for a little bit of context, he's talking to God. 
And Moses asks to see God's glory. And the Lord says, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim my name. I will proclaim my name, the Lord, or Yahweh, as it is in the ancient language. I will proclaim my name in your presence. So that's what's happening. That's where we're going. So Exodus 34. So the Lord says to Moses, chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. I wonder if he said that with a very specific, which you broke. Be ready in the morning and then come up the mount, come up onto Mount Sinai Present yourself to me there on top of the mountain. No one is to come with you or be seen anywhere on the mountain. Not even the flocks or the herds may graze on the fr- in front of the mountain. So Moses chiseled out two tablets like the first ones and went up the mountain early in the morning as the Lord had commanded. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. And then the Lord came down in a cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord, or Yahweh. And he passed in front of Moses in that moment, proclaiming Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving Wickedness, rebellion, and sin, yet. He does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generations. That is God's name. Now, we like the first part of what he said. We like less the second part about the punishment and the the guiltiness and the, and the sins and generations and stuff like that. But in this moment, God declares His name. And it's a name that helps Israel and us shape our understanding of who God is and what God is like. And what we notice when we look a bit closer in this narrative is that we see seven positive characteristics, seven characteristics we like, and two characteristics we struggle with. And I want us to have a little bit of a look at those specifically. God declares that He is merciful. In Hebrew, it's rechum. Can you say that one with me? Rechum. Rechum. Well done. This is the inclination of a parent towards a child to withhold punishment that they might otherwise be due. That's the the idea. So we see God as as merciful. We see God as gracious. Chanun. Can you say this one? We're going to learn some Hebrew this morning. Are you ready for it? So you've got to get your R's rolling, loosen up the tongue a little bit. And we're going to say Chanun. Chanun. Chanun means to be gracious. Grace, grace is like mercy, 
But to be gracious is to offer unmerited favor, where mercy is to withhold due punishment. We talked about this at Christmas last year, which I'm sure you all remember, was that mercy is withholding punishment and that is due, and grace is affording favor that is unmerited. But then God is also slow to anger. Orak apayim. Orak apayim. Orak apayim. And this means to be long-nosed. Now, no offense to anybody, whether you consider yourself your big nose or short nose or whatever, but the idea behind this is the, an opportunity for rage to dissipate. Because to be angry and to be furious, as mentioned earlier in, verse, in chapter 32, was for God to breathe out fury upon Israel, was literally to breathe fire from the nose. Maybe this is where they got the, the dragon mythology from, I don't know. But to breathe fire from the nose, fury. And so to be long-nosed means the fire takes longer and has the opportunity to dissipate. That's actually what this actually means. So to be, to be slow to anger is to create space for your anger to dissipate. It doesn't mean you're not angry. No, no. It means you've got the margin to, for your anger to dissipate. It talks about God as being abounding in steadfast love. Rab kosad. Rab kosad. So who said you don't learn anything in church? You're learning some Hebrew today. Which is and this talks about loyal, loving commitment, like a covenant, but like a marriage that we understand today. Abounding in, in steadfast love. He's faithful. Emet. Emet. He's faithful. Completely reliable. Steadfast love. There's a bit of revision. This one's kosad. Kosad. Which is like rab kosad, but just kosad. And this is just simply a long-lasting love. And then last of all, God is forgiving. Nor saw. Nor saw. Nor saw. And this literally means to lift or relieve a burden. Altogether, we get a picture from this of merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love, faithfulness, steadfast in love. And forgiving. We get a picture of a generous and a forgiving God, don't we? And that's the sort of God we like. We'd love it if that's what God was all of the time. And it's worth noticing that this was shared at the moment when God was most ultimately offended by Israel. Don't miss that as a moment. When God is the most offended that we have seen Him in Scripture at this moment in time, we read about a generous and forgiving God. But it doesn't just stay with the good stuff. We also read about the other things. We read about two terms, and it's more a description than a specific word, that describe God's ferocity and God's sovereign right to bring about justice and condemnation upon anyone that would do the wrong thing. Two terms, really, that describe that ferocity in God's perfect justice. And these terms are that God, the best way to describe it is, God really won't overlook sin, 
God doesn't, won't just not overlook it. God really won't, almost can't overlook sin. And the secondly, that God permits the consequences of sin to play themselves out. God won't overlook our sin. And God allows, in some sense, the consequences of sin to play out. That's where he talks about the sins being passed down the generations. So hang on a sec. If you're saying, Josh, you're saying that God is extraordinarily gracious. Thumbs up, like that one. But also God is infinitely just. Struggle a little bit more with that one. So God forgives completely, yes. And God punishes thoroughly, yes. How does that work? How does that work? How confusing. How how does that all fit together? What I find really interesting as we think about these two contradicting ideas, a God of love and grace and a God of punishment and justice. For many of us, we hold on to one of those two pictures of God, don't we? In our moments in time. Many of us are quite happy to hold on to a God of love and grace and forget the God of sin and justice, the one that punishes sin and brings infinite justice. But some of us, in our harsher moments, and to be honest, this is probably Christians sit more in this camp than anyone, is that we all we absolutely affirm a God of justice and purity and, and holiness and all that sort of stuff, and we forget about the love sometimes. And what I find interesting is that throughout all of Scripture, through all of the writings of the Old Testament, where people try and grapple with this identity of who God is. Is God this loving, gracious God, or is God this God of of justice and wrath? All of them, as they're trying to reflect on God, can't reconcile them, so they choose one. Two-thirds of the Psalms are about a God of graciousness, and and one-third of the Psalms is about inviting God's wrath on the people that they don't like. Every time someone reflects about God, we choose one or we choose the other, because we can't Hold them both in tension. We either want a God of love, which means we get to do what we want and leverage God's forgiveness in our life, or we want a God of justice, which means we better live right or else. And if we haven't lived right, we carry around our guilt and our shame. And it's in that tension that God presents us with a think-different moment. Up until this point, no one has been able to reconcile these two realities of God. But in a moment in time, God invites us to think differently through a man born to a virgin by the name of Jesus. And and John, the writer of of the, the fourth gospel, He writes, fast-forwarding to to John chapter 1, he writes, here quick, Josh, find the thing you should have bookmarked already. 
In John chapter 1, he writes that the Word, Jesus, the Word that was there in the beginning with God and the Word was God, that the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. And we have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father. And here it is, full of grace and full of truth. Full of grace and full of truth. Not a bit of grace and a lot of truth, not a lot of truth truth and a bit of grace. Fullness of grace and truth. Out of His fullness we have all received grace in a place of grace that was already given. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Friends, Jesus embodied the tension that up until that point, no one could fully reconcile. He embodied that tension through the way he lived, through the way he loved, through the way he spoke truth to power and the way he spoke love to the broken. And for us, he didn't just embody that tension. He also achieved it for us on the cross. He was able to achieve the fullness of grace and the fullness of truth to be true in our lives through his death on the cross. Jesus taught a radically different concept of God. In a radically different way for us to relate to him. And he describes it like this. And we sort of miss it, we, we, we brush over it if we don't take notice. But in Luke chapter 11, verse 1 and 2, one day Jesus was praying. He was praying in a certain place. When he finished One of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. Just as John taught his disciples to pray, can you teach us to pray? You seem to pray kind of a bit more convincingly than everyone else. So can you teach us to pray? And Jesus turns to them, verse 2, and he says to them, when you pray, say, Father, Father, Hallowed be your name. When you pray, pray, Father, hallowed be your name. And he continues later on and he says in verse 11, which of you, if you're a father, he says, which which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, we'll give him a snake. Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. If you then, who are evil, broken, sinful, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your 
Father, there's that word, in heaven, give the Holy Spirit to those who ask of him. Friends, Jesus came to achieve something extraordinary. He came to reconcile for us a name for God that is both the fullness of grace and love and compassion and the fullness of God's justice and truth. And he says that we can call that God, his God, our God, Father. That's the gospel. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. That God has a name, but God has a new name. And it is that we can call God Father. And it's not like the fathers that you or I had growing up, whatever we think of those. For some of us, a father is a desperately broken image of humanity. For some of us, having a father is a deep wound. And so for some of us, the invitation for a father, instead of us thinking the positive things of the father growing up, instead, the invitation father is to look to God to fill the gaps that we never had. That we can call God Father through faith is what Jesus Christ did for us. And so it comes to, if this is true, and we have this new name for God, we get to reshape our understanding of what is possible, of what is true, of what is real, and of how we live it out. Because it really comes down to this. When you experience Jesus, you want those who haven't to experience Him as well, yes? When we come to grips with what Jesus did for us, that we might be able to call God Father, we want others to know about that for themselves, don't we? When we realize that Jesus is for us and that God as it says in that chapter 11, God gives you good things. God is for you. God is, wants the best for you. He doesn't give you negative things when you ask for good things. He gives you the best of the best, and the best was the Holy Spirit, is the Holy Spirit in and through our life. When we realize that Jesus is for us, it ought to compel us forwards to the community. Jesus has caused us to think different about who God is and it's life-changing and it's eternity-shaping for everyone. So many people are more familiar with what the church is against rather than what it's for. We want to be known for what we are for. We want to be known for being for our community. We want to be for families. We want to be for students. We want to be for adults and children, businesses, schools. Any community we are called to influence, we want to be for them. And the best, when we want also that the world around us know that God is for them as well. 
but it's not, it doesn't start and end with us. It's great that we're for them, but we are for them so that they might know that God is for them. Whether they accept it or not is not up to us. But my heart, our heart, is that we would be a gathering of people, a church, where the message that we have is so clear that it cannot be misunderstood. We want to be a community where our message is so clear that it cannot be misunderstood. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this? Well, the first is an invitation. Do you believe it? Do you believe that God is for you? I don't care how long you've been coming to this church. I don't care. I love that you are here, but this question has got nothing to do with your presence here. Do you believe that God is for you? Because the invitation is there. Because until you do, Nothing else matters. Until you do, nothing we do matters because our love and our ability to be for our community begins with understanding that God is for you. And so I want to put that invitation out there this morning. That if you want to understand what it means to be for God, if if you have never been for God, understand that God is for you in your life. I want to invite you to consider it today for the first time. And I want to catch up with you after the service and pray with you about that because it is the best decision that you will ever make. And it might be that you'd never thought about it until this moment. That you'd, all, the, all the names that you've had for God up till now have shaped God in a certain way, but you've never seen Him as a God that is for you. Maybe that's what you need this morning. And there's no shame if I've known you for five years since I got here and this never hit home for you. There is no shame to receive it today for the first time. So that's something we can do. But what else we can do is to make sure that our message is clear. So I trust that when I walk out into the car park after the service today, every car is going to have a car magnet on it that says, for Gawler. And if you didn't get a, like a sticker, we had stickers to start with, now we've got car magnets. So if you haven't got one on your car or your buggy or your walker or whatever it is that you have to get around, I want you to put one on your car, on your vehicle. Because we want to get a message out that says we are for our community. And then next week, we're going to be invited to start working towards Christmas hampers again. But we're going to do something a little bit different. And I want to invite you to prepare for this a little. Is that up until now, we've done Christmas hampers constantly. Every every year, Christmas hampers for those that need support during during Christmas. But this year... We're going to do a little bit more. This year I'm going to invite you to, to get some, some um, canned goods and some other things and then you'll get a list about all of that next week. But each, I'm also going to invite each of you to write a card, a Christmas card from you 
so it's going to have your name on it, and it's going to have no name at the top. It's just going to say something meaningful about Christmas to be placed in that box and received by a family that desperately needs hope at Christmas time. And it's going to be from you. Not from Gawley United Church. It's going to be from you. And that's going to be also a way for us to show we are for the families in our midst. So God has a name. And God has invited us to call Him by a name. And no matter what you thought that name was coming in here today, the invitation is to leave this place knowing that God is for you and He is inviting you to call Him Father. Let's pray with me, church. Loving God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the way that it speaks hope and meaning and truth into our lives. And and Lord, I know that this is tricky to hear sometimes and there's a truth here about the way that we have seen you in our past. But Lord, the invitation is here for us to see you in a new light this morning. As a God that is for us, that wants to give us good gifts, And has given us the greatest gift through his son, Jesus Christ. So Lord, would you open our hearts to receive what you have for us. And Lord, if we have never realized just how much you are for us, just how much you gave for us, just what you did, help us to receive it for the first time today. To take a step of faith this morning and receive that which you have for us, a love, a grace, and a purpose like we have never known in this life. So give us the wisdom to know how to respond this morning, and the grace to do so. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.